You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. Uh, today I'm joined by kind of a, a different guest here, Jacob uh, Sipkin. Is that how I say your last name? Nailed it. That's a that's a that's a rare one. Yeah, good job. <laughs> it's literally the only way I think that you can pronounce those letters put together. I mean, uh, my name has a silent T, and six out of seven letters are consonants. It's kind of like. This is this is the mispronunciation of my last name is nobody's fault, nobody's fault but my parents for not changing it when they immigrated. It's their fault. My my last name's Can C A N N, and you would not believe how often that gets murdered when, uh, when you go places. Oh man, I, I have a I have a good buddy, a guy named Kale Beck. He's a strongman guy. You may, you might know him. Um, and people always his name is K A L L E last name Beck B E C K. He all his people always mispronounce his first name because what kind of name is Kale? But I distinctly remember one time where somebody got his first name right. I was like, "Are you Kale Bach? Really? <laughs> you got you managed Kale, but you couldn't figure out Beck? Hmm. I, I think this will actually be a good segue into our." Um... Um, conversation about how dynamic human beings are. But first, <laughs> I, I want to um, hear a little bit about, about your background because you have a normally, so I've had one non-powerlifting guest on this and this is like our closest 70th, 70th episode. So you are a rare find on, uh, on this podcast. So let everybody know your uh, background a little bit. Sure. So uh, I've been a professional coach now for about 12 years. And uh, my, I guess, specialty, you'd call it, is working with competitive CrossFitters. I got my start in CrossFit in 2005. Uh, I'm originally from Monterey, California, which is very close to kind of where CrossFit got started. Santa Cruz, about 40 minutes away. So I got started with that in 2005. And uh, I got into, through CrossFit, I spent quite a bit of time focused on weightlifting, a uh, good amount of time focused on, I wouldn't say powerlifting. I never competed, but I trained for the powerlifts under, under Mike Tushier of reactive training systems. Who's still one of my very good friends. And, and I, you know, uh, one of the coaches I respect the most in the world, Mike is just tremendous. Uh, but yeah, so, so I, I owned a CrossFit gym for about seven years. I sold that back in 20, uh, 2015 or end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And now I run a company called Anarchos training methods, uh, formerly TZ strength. And what I do is I write, do online, you know, remote coaching and programming for uh, a mixture of athletes, a lot of competitive CrossFitters, I also do programming for CrossFit gyms. I work with some weightlifters and powerlifters. Uh, you know, usually when I have uh, a friend who wants to do that stuff and wants to work with me because they know me rather than necessarily seeking out a powerlifting or weightlifting coach, work with a few endurance athletes here and there. But uh, yeah, definitely the, the niche uh, to this point has been competitive CrossFit. Actually, I, I like, um, so little background on how I found Jacob. I was, uh, so this is before I actually talked to um, Mike of reactive training systems. Uh, I was just trying to get some background. So I knew Mike was talking about this emerging strategies, um, lifting paradigm type thing. And I want to make sure like when I was talking to him that I, I, I had that information and I kind of understood what I could um, understand from it. And I saw Jacob's podcasts, uh, with Mike and it was titled, I believe it was specificity versus transference or something like that. Yeah. Something, something along those lines. So the way that I do my coaching is I use a constraints led approach. So I use a ton of variation, mm -hmm. uh, where 
my goal as a coach is not necessarily, I, I will give feedback and I try to make it in a more um, productive manner. But if somebody's, let's say hips are rising up in the squat um, on the way up, like from the, from the bottom, I might put them in a high bar wide stand squat. So if their hips pop up at all, they're going to eat shit. Sure. So it's, I'll use stuff that's not really conventional and a lot of people are like, well, it's not specific. And so mm-hmm. I see, I see the title of this podcast specificity versus transference. And I'm like, Oh, I kind of want to hear what this is. Sure. Um, all about, so you guys were talking, there were a lot of, um, interesting points you made. And I actually really like the point that you made about like you had brought jujitsu into it and like how you were talking even about like the specificity of powerlifting and, um, how competition it's ego driven, right? And pra- practice comes from a completely different part of the brain and there's crowds and you're taking singles and it's, and it's very different. I, I kind of want you to, um, if you don't mind kind of maybe rehashing some of those same points you made in that podcast, uh, Sure. Yeah, I, I don't remember the, the, the exact specifics, but kind of the brunt of the conversation or the brunt of the question is, um, you know, we, the, the, the common uh, assumption is that specificity, that is to say, training in a way which mimics the competitive events uh, is the most effective way to train. And of course, what we mean by the most effective is will lead to the best competition results. Now, I want to say first, that is often true. It is often the case that training in a pretty specific fashion um, is the most effective way or one of the most effective ways to produce competition results. But the point that most people miss is that that is incidental. In other words, people think, the way that people kind of conceptualize this is, well, uh, let's take powerlifting as, as the example. I compete in the squat, bench press, and deadlift. I specifically compete in, let's say, a low bar squat with a particular bar placement, a bench press with a certain amount of arch and a certain grip width and a certain foot placement, and either a sumo or conventional deadlift. So the way people think about that is, well, I took take those specific things, and if I perform those in training, that's going to have more carryover to competition than anything else because it's more similar. And that line of thinking is, is often... Correct. My, my athletes, depending on the athlete, you know, often do use a highly specific approach. And, you know, you mentioned that you use a lot of variants. And of course, variance doesn't necessarily mean you don't do specific, the specific side of training. It just means that it's not the point. And that's the key. The point is the transference, right? The point is we want to use the exercises and modalities and formats that create the best transfer to competition. In other words, it does in fact happen to be the case that a lot of the time training your competition back squat has a really high transfer to how you will do in competition. But if it were the case that I could show you that training leg presses and good mornings had a better carryover, a better transference, that's what your training will be based around. The, the fact that specificity often has a high transfer is incidental. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I would even, so, you know, when we're drawing that line for specificity, right, we talk about the squat, the bench press and the deadlift, and you're going to pull a certain style. You're going to have a certain arch and a certain grip width on the bench press. And you're going to probably low bar certain foot position that you're comfortable with on the squat. How less specific is it if I just take that squat and widen your feet two inches? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good, that's a good question. You know, and I think a lot of people get hung up on such minute details. And I think for a sport like powerlifting, that is just like, 
it's not that exciting. You know, you're not like, there's not like plays like there are in football that get developed. It's not a team sport. Yeah. We're not, we're not moving our feet and we're laying down for a third of it. So it's, it's hard to like, and I think in a lot of cases it comes down to like ego driven coaches and like, I'm not saying ego, like these people have egos, like that just portion of our brain that we want to do well at our job or we want to maybe show somebody how much we know, how good of a coach we are. And it comes down to like, well, it's easier to explain specificity than it would be to explain transference because transference can be messy, right? Yeah. Well, I think the thing is training is messy. Training is an organic process with a lot of rough edges. And I'm very skeptical of the, tendency of a lot of, including a lot of very good coaches. And this is certainly something I have been guilty of. And I probably am to some extent still, but there's this tendency to try to smooth out those rough edges as if you can just, if you just work diligently enough, you can smooth them out completely and you'll never have to like you, essentially you can find the formula, but the formula doesn't exist. Training is an organic rough edged process. It's interactive and you have to be involved and present in in the athlete's training process. Uh, and there's, there's just no, there is no smoothing out the rough edges completely. It's, it's not going to happen. And I think that the, the attempt to, the attempt to make it to completely take out those rough edges is, is maybe admirable, but it's ultimately fruitless. The rough edges are there. There's nothing we can do about it. I actually like how you use, um, the rough edges because so for me, right. I think in a lot of cases, what you see is it's where we draw that boundary. Right. So a lot of people will have this like finite structure and I'll explain how I do things. Cause I, I have a very like unconventional way of like thinking of this stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but people will draw that boundary leaving out the rough edges, I think in a lot of cases. And it's like, well, this works for the majority of the people. Let's forget about those. And then they have one, there's ones like you were saying, you know, they look at the rough edges and they try to smooth them out. And I'll tell you, I was one of the ones trying to smooth out those rough, rough edges. Oh, oh, me too. Absolutely. A a long, long time. But I do think there's some middle ground there because I think understanding the rough edges and it helps you understand more of the chaotic nature of training in itself because it is messy, right? I'm like... I think for us as strength coaches, it's linear until it's not, right? So it'll be maybe it's 12 weeks, somebody sees continued progress, and then all of a sudden things start to change. Or we might have somebody for a period of time, they hit PRs in the middle of a block, but once we taper, it's just not there on the platform. Like there's irregularities that we can't explain. It's linear until it becomes this nonlinear, chaotic mess. Yeah. Um, And I think to try to understand the chaos that's on the outside like that is it's hard because it's basically, I have this coaching philosophy that I don't have the answer. So for um, years, like when I was trying to rough out those edges, I'm trying, how much does training volume matter? I I know it's, I know it's important. The principle of overload, the principle of specificity, like all, all of these things, how, how much does fatigue affect performance? How do we monitor it? And I was trying so hard to understand these things. And then I realized one thing that I, I was with those questions, I was asking the wrong person. I don't like, I don't have the answers for those questions because like That's you right. said, the math doesn't exist. That's um, right. it, even if it does exist, it's far outside of my capabilities of understanding. Cause there's probably some imaginary numbers in there and it exists on a plane that we don't exist on. So, right. You know, I think with that, like, it's, it's hard to like fathom as a coach to be like, fuck, 
I literally have zero of these answers. Where do I go from here? Um, yeah, absolutely. And well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, so I came to a lot of the same conclusions and then I started asking, well, well who does have the answers? And it's not answers in the conventional sense, right? When we think of the term of the word answer, what we think is, oh, I have a question and somebody can tell me the fact of the matters, uh, the fact of the matter as it relates to that question. Um, that's not really what it is. But what you do have is an athlete. And this is really important. Like the next three words I'm going to say are, are so crucial for coaches to understand. Athlete experience matters. The experience of the training process on the athlete's side is the single most valuable informative tool you have. This is because general principles of training are strictly false. What I mean by that is not they don't inform us in important ways, right? Like let's take the principle of overload. You have to overload, you know, you have to apply sufficient stress and that, that number, the sufficient, you know, X is going to grow over time. You, you must apply enough stress in order to make progress. Now, that is a general principle. And as general principles go, it is true. But general principles are strictly false once you narrow down to a sufficiently individual level. So once you narrow it down to the question of a specific athlete, the principle of progressive overload becomes a tool rather than a principle. And then you apply it to that athlete and that athlete may, may have to apply it in some some way that looks totally different. So I, you know, I have athletes who follow very linear programs. Like, you know, we squat a 10 at eight in week one, we squat a 10 at nine in week two, we squat a 10 RM in week three, we deload in week four, we repeat with sets of eight, sets of five, sets of three. I have athletes who on the flip side are extremely varied where they follow like an ABC, uh, you know, their, their micro cycle instead of one week is three weeks, which with an A week, a B week and a C week. And one week they're doing, back squats and front squats off of pins. And the next week they're doing box squats and regular front squats. And, and uh, I'm still applying to some extent, the principle of, of overload, but it looks extremely different for one athlete than another. Uh, and, and I think it's important to understand that like when you engage with those general principles, once you're applying them to a specific athlete, the particular athlete's training process is your best informative tool. And the attempt to sort of shoehorn those principles in, in, in a particular structure or framework um, is, is only going to work for so long. I literally couldn't agree more with anything you just said right there. I, I have this, like this theory and I've started to write about it a little bit, like on my blog and talk about it and stuff, but like those, those, you know, mechanical stress matters. We know you can't just squat once every six months and expect to be a world champion power lifter. Absolutely. So, so there are like certain boundaries in which like the structure needs to be founded in. Yeah. But I think the mechanical stress only matters as much as the lifter in front of you perceives it to matter. If they feel they need a lot of submaximal volume, and this is kind of what like you're talking about, what your programs I think do is they allow them to kind of figure out those things for themselves. Right. Yeah. And like, I try to think when I'm writing a program that, you know, I was asking myself these questions before, like you were saying, but you, you know, how much does volume matter? Well, here are these general principles, but once we filter it down to the individual, it doesn't make much sense anymore. I wasn't asking the right person the question. Exactly. And then the problem is, is when I try to ask the lifter, Hey, Jacob, you're my lifter. How much volume do you think you need? 
what I'm pay- I'm paying you per month. What the fuck are you talking about? The, yeah, the like, question doesn't even make se- wouldn't even make sense to most athletes. They wouldn't even know how to how to begin to answer it. Right, exactly. And they're looking for guidance, and they're paying for that guidance. So what I try to what I'm trying to do, like with my programs, is leave it a lot more open ended. Like if I want to know how much volume matters, uh, so I use a rating to like um, measure the end of the session and how hard it was. Yeah, a session um, RPE. Yeah, yeah, basically. Uh-huh. I just use a simple like one to five score for that. Um, and then I'll, I'll write out there, like I might put like five sets of three in the squat or something. And I'm, I give them a suggested top set, like what I think they should be hitting for. Like we always take one to two, what I call hard sets, like eight and a half to nine and a half. Like it should be fucking hard. Um, and it's just to ensure we get a training stimulus. And then on top of that, so if the weights aren't there, don't take them. Make, yeah. make, make a decision. What you feel is right on that given day, make a decision. And they kind of self-organize into number of sets, number of reps, uh, a performance range for weights. And then that end of session RPE score with a mood score entering the gym. Like I help. That's how I build out their following week. So like by putting that and leaving it open-ended, I'm asking them how much volume matters for you. And like together, we're going to, you know, I'll guide you along this process, but hopefully we figure it out. And what you build, like you were saying for some of your athletes, like from person to person, it looks very different um, pro- program to program because they're starting to figure it out. And, and I think you nailed it. Like based off of their performance, like what they're doing is the best thing. And I think I used to look at training as a means of, all right, well, I want to fix their technique. If I fix their technique, then I'm going to increase their performance. The problem with that thinking is that's all guessing. It's all based off of my bias. Yep. Um, so I think now I'm giving them an input. Here's my expected output. I watch and see if my hypothesis is proven correct. If it's not, we readjust. If, you know, we yeah. see some cogs along the way, we make some changes. Um, maybe if you could talk a little bit more about like how you come to figure out like those nuances for for each lifter. Cause somebody comes in, you know, you get five people starting with you in the same week, how they end up finding their own paths. Sure. So there's, there's a few, there's a few directions this goes in and I'll try my best to, to pick one and stick to it, but that's not my, that's not generally my strong suit. So no promises. Um, I guess I want to start by saying there was, there was a, a really good post on Instagram the other day by Eric Helms. I don't know Eric. I've never met him. I don't think I've ever spoken to him, but Mike, tells me he's one of the strongest guy, uh, smartest guys in the game. And when Mike says something like that, I listen. So uh, Eric put up a post about coaching and, and particularly about sort of like it's a rel- this remote coaching is a relatively new thing. And he made a really important point, which is that the, I believe the phrasing he used was coaches are not appliances. And with the influx of a lot of new coaches into the remote coaching market, not necessarily a bad thing, that's fine. But with that influx, there's this need to make yourself stand out in a particular way. And what he suggested was that when coaches do a lot of like, oh, my athletes have set this many PRs in competition and we've, we've won, you know, these many, this many medals and this and that, what you're kind of doing is you're creating this, uh, false impression of what coaching is. You can create this impression where an athlete hires a coach with the assumption that the coach is like taking a new supplement or, uh, you know, adding a new exercise in your program. We're like, Oh, this is the thing I have problem X and this is the solution to problem X. That's not what coaching is. Coaching is an interactive process whereby the coach and the athlete work together 
to ideally work together to gradually develop a training process that works for the athlete. That process will change and mutate over time. Things that worked in the past won't work anymore. Things that didn't work in the past will all of a sudden be fantastic. And the thing I want to emphasize is it is an interactive and collaborative process. I think the current model, the way that we perceive of coaching and coaches, you know, those words, words have context, words have meaning. And when people perceive of a coach, you know, especially in the West, especially, you know, in the U S I'm not familiar with, with other sporting cultures, but here, a lot of the time you think of a coach and you think of a, you know, a dude with a beer belly with a, and a, and a whistle and sweatpants yelling at you at PE or football practice or whatever. A coach is a boss. A coach is someone who tells you what to do and you do it for your own good. Um, that might be fine for some people. I work with adults and I think that adults deserve to be respected, to be heard out and that they should be considered as part of their own training process. So it's, it's ultimately a collaborative effort between the athlete and the coach. Um, and what that leads to is the development of autonomy on the athlete's part, which sounds like a lot of what you're doing. You're developing autonomy. And I don't know if you're aware that you're doing this consciously or not, but the way, what I hear when you describe the process, you just, uh, you just, you know, sort of explain to me is that you are helping your athletes develop the skill of training. Training is a skill. People can be better or worse at training. I don't mean people can have better or worse programs. I mean, my contention is you could have two athletes with identical genetic and environmental circumstances, give them both the same program written out word for word and tell them to run it on their own. It's entirely feasible that one athlete, assuming they complete all the workouts, they do the program and do everything. It's still entirely feasible that one of those two athletes is going to have better results from the program. And the reason for that is that it is possible to be better or worse at training, to have the skill of training, uh, just like any other skill, you can be good at it, bad at it, great at it, terrible at it. And it, it sounds like what you're doing is you're developing a coaching process that is centered on helping your athlete develop the skill of training so that they can get as much as possible out of each training session. That's literally like I, um, this is, I tell them all the time that I view strength as a skill. So the squat, the bench and the deadlift, like, because it's nonlinear, there are progressions, regressions, skips, jumps. And like, you just, there's that like intuitive process as you go through it of just like, you know, you're making your best guesstimate for the person in front of you and just yeah. hoping, hoping for the best. And I think you make a good point about like the coaching, uh, you know, coaches being more like appliances. Like I was that, you know, because I could track data, I had these fancy Excel spreadsheets that I, I tracked all kinds of volume, number of lifts, average intensities, fancy colors, all of all this sheet was doing. I think it was just creating a confirmation bias within myself that wasn't allowing me to actually go through that intuitive process of coaching each lifter. And when I took mm -hmm. a minute to really step back and like think, cause I'm like, so Boris Shaker was my coach for the first a little over three years of my coaching career. So I come from a big, like sub-maximal volume. Sure. Um, highly specific, right? Every variation we did was with feed in comp placement, bar yeah. placement and grip, all that stuff. Um, and when I thought about it and I know I asked you about Kylie's work and you said that Mike had mentioned it to you. So you kind of have yeah. like a, an idea about it. So he says exactly what you were saying, right? That like 
that athlete's like perceptions, emotions, cognitions, beliefs, like who they are as a human being plays a role in their, it is a part of their physiological strength. Absolutely. And so I was for a long period of time trying to push like a Soviet system type program on my lifters and it, it worked okay. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Um, but I think looking back on it, like when I really think about the culture, right. Cause culture also plays a role in this. Oh yeah. So in, the Soviet Union, they had powerlifting schools. So if you were, you know, eight years old and you wanted to be a powerlifter, you'd go to school for that. And it, it's like a school subject. So the coaches and the athletes are raised within this school system. Their perceptions, their beliefs, their culture, they're set at that moment in time for, for them. So when they come out and they're of age, like, of course, the Soviet system works extremely well. Sure. For the Soviets, it's set up to for them. And like yeah. for, for us, you could have, like you were saying, like they're identical twins here in America and where we have different perceptions, beliefs, and maybe, you know, there's like a time component of being, there's just not that same, like, you know, somebody here is probably not lifting until they're in their twenties, but it's not going to work the same way because their perceptions and beliefs and culture is just centered around a completely different focus. So they're going to get a different outcome from the program. And like, I think the difficult thing to understand is and like, for me, it's like, Oh, but I'm applying overload. I'm putting more volume. Why aren't they hitting, hitting PRs? And that person that hit the PR with those volumes six months ago is a different person today with different needs. Um, You know, and I think, so like with my programming, I think of it as, you know, this is how I, I like fucking with a lot of the like lifters on my team by saying some like, just like crazy shit, but like there's, you know, there is a box for training, right? There are, like you were saying, general principles apply. Yeah. But we need to be able to like bend and contort that box and it bends and contorts to infinity as like that yep, person yep. in front of us is just a constantly changing human being and being aware of that. And you can't do that. Like for me, staring at my spreadsheets and not letting them be a collaborative piece of that literally was holding me back for a period of time until finally, I don't know what happened. Um, but I kinda, yeah, it, it's, th- sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, all you. Well, I was going to say there's, there's this really large um, ontological issue laying at the, at the, the heart of all this, I think. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, and when I say thinking about what I mean is sending Mike rapid fire text messages about, um, which is that people seem to be unaware of a really important, I wouldn't call it a problem, but people not, seem to not fundamentally understand the nature of classification and taxonomy. So, so let's take tonnage. The, the co- most common way in strength training to track volume is tonnage. And that is to say, how many pounds did you lift? As in, I did five sets of five with 100 pounds. Each set is 500 pounds, 5X 500, 2,500 pounds of volume. That's the common way to track volume. That's how everybody has done it since time immemorial, as far as I know. Here's the issue. That's not necessarily a bad way to track volume, but people treat it as if it is a true way to track volume or a correct way to track volume when in fact it is entirely 100% arbitrary. It has nothing to do with anything. It's literally just, I need a way to keep track of stuff. This one seems intuitively valuable. That doesn't mean it's not useful, but it's really important to understand that classifications of this type 
are arbitrary. They're made up. We superimpose them. They are descriptive. They're just, all it is, is we're looking at this process and saying, how can I organize it in a way that makes sense? The reason that's important to understand is that when I talk about like progressive overload, for example, well, okay. So if we want to use progressive overload and we want to use tonnage as our measure of volume, then uh, the way that I increase stress is by increasing volume through either increasing the load, increasing the, the uh, amount of reps or both. And that perfectly satisfies progressive overload. But if you assume that it's like that volume delineation, that volume description is quote unquote true in some way, then you're completely lost when it fails you. When it doesn't work, you just sit back and go, well, I did the thing, right? I increased stress. I know that because my athlete did more, more volume as measured by tonnage. That's progressive overload. So they, they didn't get injured. They completed all the workouts successfully. Why didn't they get stronger? The problem is that volume calculation is a totally arbitrary one. And this is true, not just of things like volume. It's true of things like, um, distinctions between like energy system pathways, right? Oh, this is aerobic. Oh, this is, this is aerobic. This is anaerobic. This is, uh, aerobic glycolytic. This is anaerobic glycolytic. This is fast glycolysis. This is slow glycolysis. That's not to say these distinctions can't be useful, but are they really true in any meaningful sense or are they arbitrary descriptive mechanisms? Are they a way of organizing our understanding of physiology? Organizing our understanding of physiology is perfectly good. And these might, might in fact be the most useful descriptions uh, or classifications we can find. But when it comes to the training process itself, we have to remember those distinctions are ultimately arbitrary. And if we lean into them too hard, we're going to get lost when things don't work. I literally, like, I've never thought of it that, that way before, but I can relate to being in that, in that position. Like it, it took in, and like you said, it's, what do you do when it doesn't work? Right. Like you just have, like, I, I remember for me in those moments of time, just feeling like, Oh my God, I made a terrible career choice because I, I can't figure this out. Um, yeah. And- well, the problem is that if you, if you go in with that mindset, if it's, if you are treating these distinctions as true or objectively correct instead of as arbitrary but useful, there doesn't seem to be an answer. Because if it's just true and correct, then you just have to kind of throw your hands up in the air and say it's user error somewhere, right? It's, it's either the athlete didn't follow the program correctly or, or I missed something. You, you can't, it's literally unthinkable. I mean, unthinkable in the the most literal possible way you are, you have limited your ability to think about the training process by committing yourself to distinctions that are at their core arbitrary. And once you've locked yourself into that box, all you're doing is running into walls. Um, I think this might be a good segue into one of the other things. Sure. I wanted, I wanted to talk about the role of, um, science and coaching. And I think our research structure in general is just kind of set up in a way that like we need to find a way to measure things. Right. So like you're saying, we're putting these arbitrary units um, on these options to measure them and, you know, drawing these conclusions based off of these arbitrary numbers that this is most likely right at this current moment in time. 
Um, what, and, and I'm not trying to say science isn't important. I think there's a balance sure. of course, but I want to hear, cause I, I found this interesting when you were talking with Mike, um, your role that, that you feel science plays in the, the coaching aspects. Sure. So I should preface this by saying, um, I have no formal scientific background. I am a junior college dropout. I barely graduated high school. I cheated to get through algebra two. Uh, <laughs> my, my, uh, the closest thing I have to a formal educational background beyond high school is in philosophy. Um, so I, I'm, I'm used to, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with the field of philosophy, but the simplest way to look at it is it's critical inquiry and often related to non-empirical questions. So what science does to empirical questions, philosophy, um, Sometimes it's to empirical questions too, but the difference is philosophy attempts to do it with non-empirical questions. So when I think about something like the role of science in coaching, first of all, I think it's really, really important to acknowledge that science has inherent limits. And that's where I see us running into problems. Science is, a, is the best tool we have for inquiry into the empirical world. The best tool, hands down, not close. Nothing else, nothing, like, there's not even another thing. Critical, organized inquiry into the physical world is science. That's, that's what science is, and it's the best tool we have for it. Unfortunately, um, there are epistemic limits on science that are intractable. Really, there are limits to how much we can possibly know, right? I think the way I probably put it, I don't know if it was on that podcast with Mike or with a, on a different one, but I, I distinctly have, remember having said to him, you know, there is objective truth. There is objective reality. Insisting that those things don't exist is foolish, but we must acknowledge that we have limits in the extent to which we can access them. So what does that mean for science and coaching? It means you have to start off by acknowledging that science is extremely useful. And if you're just ignoring it, period, you're, you're probably failing at your job. You should do better. But the next step is, well, when do I have to step back? At what point is the research, at what point is PubMed going to fail me? We know there are problems with the publication process in science, right? Uh, the replication crisis is a very, it's a real problem. It's, it's something worth considering. But I think we don't even need to get that granular. The ultimate problem is sometimes you can be the most informed person in the world with regards to the research and you can put all of it into practice and it still doesn't work. Well, does that mean science is wrong or bad? No, it means science has limits, research has limits, uh, and our ability to apply what we glean from research uh, in the most accurate way possible has limits. So my view on the subject, you know, kind of the, the, the TLDR is coaches have a responsibility to stay aware, to, to first learn the basics of the, of the science. In this case, you know, we call it sports science or exercise science. You, you do have a responsibility to know that stuff. And further, you have a secondary responsibility to kind of stay on top of it. You know, you don't have to be reading every research review. Uh, it's, you know, I don't, I certainly don't do that. I'm given, I'm in a privileged position where, you know, I'm friends with people who do do that kind of stuff. And when I have a particular question, I can, I can run it by them. But once you have done that, I think your responsibilities towards the scientific side of training are, are kind of fulfilled. Your job is to understand the basics, kind of keep, you know, keep up to date with the, to a reasonable degree. Um, you know, again, don't have to stay completely on top of it because science necessarily advances quite slowly. It, it, it shouldn't be one study comes out and you're changing everything you do. So stay on top of it to a reasonable extent, apply it as it seems 
as it seems, you know, useful to do so, but don't lock yourself in to avoiding things that are seemingly incommensurate with the current science. You know, if I have an athlete who says, uh, squatting up to a moderately heavy single before every squat session, I always just feel so much stronger for the rest of the session. Like, and, and I just always feel stronger when I'm regularly squatting a moderately hard single. There are reasons to believe that might not be a good idea, but if an athlete tells me this is working and especially if I can corroborate it with their, their performance and training, I don't think I have a responsibility to do the scientific thing. I have a responsibility to do the productive thing. That's my job. Um, I like how you brought the philosophy aspect into it. Cause I actually don't feel there's enough philosophy within the science. And I think, you know, innovation will die with a lack of wonder. Right. And I think philosophy brings wonder when you're dealing with such a chaotic dynamic system. Um, and I think in terms of science, I think it gets extremely difficult for one, like getting access to the articles and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah I, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. It, it's not. And I'm fortunate enough where I have people who can gain sure. me access to that stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and then where do you look? Right. So like once you're, you know, you're, you're a coach, whether you smoked too much weed and dropped out of junior college or you ended up getting a doctorate degree or a high school graduate or something in between. Like, I think it still gets confusing on where to look, how to understand it. They don't read well. Um, and you know, for me, when I look at a lot of it is it doesn't, it's, it assumes that the human is the sum of all of its parts. So you'll see this one study that maybe it's EMG and showing, oh, these muscles activate. So this must be a good strengthening exercise for whatever muscle. Um, and I think, like you said, it's good to keep in the back of your mind because this may be true. This is information that I'm going to put into, like, into my predictive brain. So when I see stuff happening, it's going to be there to help me make a better decision. Right. Um, so like for me, it just, it, it got it got hard because how many of those studies can you actually read and take a lot from? Well, it's like, Oh, they're pitching forward in the squat. So that must mean weak quads. Well, that's assuming that that's a, me a solely mechanical issue. Like I know for me, like, uh, and I, I took people and I literally just like messed around with this just to kind of see what would happen. But you have this belief that there's like this, just, you know, knee torque issue at the bottom of a squat. So it's weak quads and mechanically that makes a lot of sense. However, I started using high bar wide stand squat for people who are pitching forward in the squat. I just had this like intuition that if I put them in this position, they pitch forward, they'll eat shit. They'll, they'll need to correct it. So I was altering that constraint in a way that would just punish that bad position. Sure. It literally fixed it for everybody I put into that situation. So then I took somebody who literally had a very bad chest fall in that pattern all I gave this person was high bar wide stand squats, two days a week. They did it for five weeks. By that sixth week, they're squatting way more upright and they ended up hitting a 10 time all time PR. So this kind of brings us back full circle again, right? I got transference from something that many people would say is not specific. The angles really weren't specific. It fixed the, what I would call put her in a position for better efficiency in the squat to allow her to, Sure. Lift more weight. And, I, and yeah. I, I saw that output. Um, so, you know, seeing that in action for me was just like, okay, 
you know, maybe it is, it's more of a skill than what we actually anticipate. I remember Shiko telling me back in the day that like, your leg extensions and all your accessories don't matter if you don't have the comp lifts with them. They like complement um, one another. And there was a big component on, you know, the skill aspect of lifting. And I think I've just like carried that. Like if I was, you know, I played, I played sports through college, post-college, like I, for me, like if I'm developing a skill within a sport, like I know what's worked like to do those things. So if I just kind of take, and this probably goes back to, my upbringing and all of this that just allows my intuition and my predictive process to work better for me and the lifters in front of me. But all those experiences, I think, play a role in my ability to use that intuition. So I had this draw to dynamic systems. Um, So like a lot of the research that I read for this stuff tends to be dynamic systems theory. So it's not always even, you know, I try to keep it as relevant to strength training as possible, but it's mostly like pain research. And I think the physiological foundation of pain and performance are very similar in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, to use the science to our advantage, that's like, I I have a graduate degree in this field and I have a hard time like sifting through the science and I need help for it. And I think, you know, maybe there needs to be a way for it to be more philosophical, but I think, you know, and this is where the philosophy aspect I think is important is we need to know what questions like we want to have answered and like to think out, not even think outside of the box because the box exists, but understand what makes up that structure of the box and understand how to bend and fold it to fit the dynamic needs of the lifter. Um, Right. The box is more, is more spherical than, than we'd often believe. There's, there's, there's a lot of uh, certainly like, again, general principles exist and we, we have to, gravitate towards them like a way you could conceptualize it is training doesn't exist in a box training is a solar system and these general principles exist at the middle of it they're the center of gravity everything has to orbit around those general principles but the behaviors of those orbits can be different right like not every athlete will gravitate towards those principles in the same way uh and, you know, something else I want to, I want to suggest to you is that when, when I talk about training as a skill, I want to take that one step further. There's what, what you're talking about is training as skill development. That is to say, when you're training the, the, the kind of focus, the heart of the matter is I'm developing the skill of squatting. So I'm developing an athlete who can squat with a, you know, with mechanics that are efficient for them and developing their skill to a high proficiency where they can move as much weight, you know, ideally, I guess we'd say their genetic ceiling, that's what we're aiming for. Is that, is that a fair characterization of, of your approach? Yeah, absolutely. So what I want to suggest to you is that we can actually take this one step further. And the ultimate skill we're trying to impart is not the skills of the particular sport in question. It's the actual skill of training itself. What does that mean? What I mean by that is when you take a look at really productive trainees, people get a lot of train, uh, a lot out of every training session. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the best athletes. It, it means they're getting the most out of their training. What you'll see is that they have, I would say, I would say they essentially are good at making decisions because what is smoothing those rough, ed- you know, we were talking earlier about training as rough edges and we're constantly trying to smooth them out. Well, what are we trying to do? What we're actually trying to do that we're often unaware of it is we're trying to automate the training process. We're trying to eliminate the need for the athlete to make decisions as they go. This is a fruitless, hopeless endeavor. The athlete will be faced 
with innumerable amounts of small decisions over a training career. And my contention is that the most, the athletes who are the most successful in terms of getting the most out of their training, doesn't matter if you are a world record holding power lifter, or you're just trying to train consistently for 10 years to be strong and healthy and fit. The athletes, the trainees who get the most out of the training process are the ones who consistently make slightly better decisions. So the the way that I put it with my athletes is your job when you're training, anytime you have to make a decision is to prioritize tomorrow's training. Okay. So that's a heuristic you can use, right? That's a, that's an actual rule of thumb you can go to. Should I add five more pounds? Well, what will five more pounds do? You know, what's likely to happen in that scenario? Is it going to be grindy? Is it going to be smooth? What's that lift actually going to look like? What am I doing tomorrow? How might this impact it? That's a heuristic we can use. But what the athlete is doing, what we're arming the athlete with is decision-making ability. And by doing so within the context of a training program, which is going to have results at some point that we're going to test, we are allowing the athlete the opportunity to, um, to essentially hone the skill of making those small decisions, right? Look at really productive athletes and what you'll see. You know, the, the, the person who always comes to mind for me in this regard is, is Chad Wesley Smith, the owner of Juggernaut. Chad is one of the most effective trainees I've ever seen. I, I was fortunate enough to spend two years down in Southern California. Uh, I had an office in the same, in the building that, that Juggernaut was housed for a time. And I mean, I would literally look out of my office door and 30 feet away, Chad would be squatting, upsetting amounts of weight for upsetting amounts of reps. And, uh, when I talked to him about training and I watched the decisions he made, I watched the way he did things. There was always this very like calculated process, calculated, but maybe a little bit like subconscious or unconscious where he was constantly making these small decisions about how to structure the workout. So if he, you know, I remember he had a workout where he was supposed to do like eight sets of five, or maybe it was eight sets of eight at some given weight. And he made a decision in the middle of the process. Oh, I'm going to do this as a pyramid instead. I'm going to do two sets at this weight, 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 or a climb rather than a pyramid. Now, I don't think if I had asked Chad, what, what principle were you adhering to when you did this? I don't think like, it's not that he wouldn't know the answer is that it, it's that it's a nonsense question. That question doesn't make any sense, but Chad and athletes like Chad have this skill of making these small decisions, knowing when to adjust the program, knowing when to go off plan. Um, And I think that what we can be doing for our athletes, the most effective thing we can do is whether in an explicit or a tacit fashion, try to help them develop that set of skills to make small decisions slightly better than the next person, slightly better than average, make the make good small decisions very regularly for 10 years and you will have gotten a lot out of your training. I don't know how good you'll be. There's a lot of other factors that go into that. If you're a competitive athlete, like sometimes you just ain't got the genetics, my friend, but you will by developing that skill and by doing a good job of making small decisions well for a long period of time, you're going to get a lot of productivity out of your training. So as a coach, how do you guide them along that process of developing that skill? interaction. It's, it's, there's no easy answer, right? There's no, there's not a formula. I can't put this in a spreadsheet. So I'll do things for example, like, so right now we're, we're in the middle of the the CrossFit games open. And, um, one of the most frequent questions my athletes ask me during the open is, should I redo this workout? Uh, I don't know how familiar your clients to be with the open, but the short, or your, uh, your listeners rather, but the, the shortest, the short version is it's 
five weeks, one workout a week. It's released on Thursday, 5 p.m. at Pacific time. You have until Monday, 5 p.m. Pacific time to submit your score. So there's no limit on how many times you can actually do the workout. So a very frequent question I'll get from an athlete is they'll do the workout on Friday and then Sunday afternoon, they're asking me, should I do the workout again? So the common approach is for the coach to ask themselves, even a perfectly good coach, this is how I used to do it, to say, ask myself, what are the pros of having the athlete redo this workout? What are the cons of having the athlete redo this workout? I balance those two things and I give the athlete my answer. Just like you said, I was asking a good question. I was asking the wrong person. So now my athlete sends me a text and says, should I redo this workout? And I say, what do you think are the pros? What do you think are the cons? We start to weigh that out and they will talk themselves into or out of redoing the workout. And they will more often than not come to the conclusion that I think is the right one. Now, if they don't, then it's on me to make a decision and say, I either say, I see what you're saying, but I think you're wrong and here's why. And I think we should do it. And that's, but that's still an experience they can learn from. I explain my reasoning to them and then whatever sort of process I went through to re, to, to get there, they can now attempt to mimic or, or to, to use those same tools. Um, early on in the process, the athlete might get the answer wrong more often than they get it right. But if you go through that process with them every time, they will start to pick up on it. They will start to develop that skill for themselves and they'll start making the right decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that, um, that's literally, and this has been a relatively like maybe within the last since October when we had our nationals for me that I've made this like drastic shift because my programs used to be, there was flexibility to them, but there were so many rules within that flexibility because I was trying to like literally control load management to the pound because I was viewing those arbitrary numbers as something more than what they, um, as most true. Were, You're viewing them as were. true. Yeah. Some. Yeah, exactly. I was looking for that word. Um, so, you know, I started to, all right, well, here's, I'm just going to pretend that the sheet, it was still just a structure, um, but I'm going to pretend that it's just, it's a compass, not a roadmap. So it's just going to kind of point me in the direction I'm going to make calls and tell yep. them, what to, tell them what to put on the bar and stuff. I didn't want, like, I always get afraid of like throwing drastic change. I have a group of almost 50 lifters. So if yeah. I throw drastic change on everybody at once, I'm like, they'll all just start yelling at me and there's too many of them. Um, <laughs> so I was just sitting back and watching and in a lot of cases, just like you were saying, like, what do you think you should put on the bar? And there were times where they might come back with a number that I'm like, Ooh, that's, that's a little aggressive, but in the, you know, somewhere in me, it's, they believe that they can do this. Who am I to tell them that they can't? You know, so I would kind of let them do it and yeah, they'd miss reps occasionally and stuff, but it's a learning process. And like now it's at the point where it's like, I might program a heavy set of four on there or, or five or something. Um, and they get to that, that suggested top set and they have options that they can, you know, they can drop the weight, do the, do the reps. They can keep that weight, drop the number of reps that they actually do. So like, now all of a sudden my lifters will just be texting me, Hey, I couldn't get four with this. So I did a three by two. So they're starting to like self-organize into yeah. the volumes and intensities that, and they're making the right decisions. And, and the, what you were just saying about like 
Chad and, and like making that, like the ones who do do that have seen the most progress, like even in front of me, like, I think that's, um, a really interesting concept. And I think, like you were saying, like the communication is so important. I think people think when I do something like this, that it's like, I'm not keeping track of data, but maybe our intuition is just better at taking all the data that includes external and internal factors and pumping out a better decision-making process because it has just way more to draw upon than a few equations and some cell um, in, in some cells in a, in a spreadsheet. Um, yeah. I want to hear what your thoughts on like that intuitive coaching process and how you kind of blend that in with, with helping them kind of develop that skill. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because I, I think intuit, like intuition and intuitive are sort of loaded words that kind of have a, they have a certain connotation in our line of work where, you know, a lot of people hear that and they hear, oh, so bullshit, you're, you're doing bullshit. Um, when I think of like, I think of intuition as just another tool, uh, another skill, if you will. And I think the key to becoming an effective coach over time is honing your intuition. How do you do that? Well, you can kind of think of it like you start with these general principles we've been talking about. The first step, or at least one of the first steps, most one of the most important first steps is, is beginning to understand these general principles. Once you have that understanding, you start applying them to athletes. And the key is to be observant of how they actually manifest and sort of chip away at your own understanding. Your, your, own, your understanding of the general principles is a block of marble. Your job is to, over time, hone it into something uh, a little bit prettier, right? Like your job is to take what you understand of the, the general principles of training that are, that are you know, scientifically derived and, and uh, you know, effective and to hone not just your understanding of how principles at large work, but hone the way that you apply principles. So one thing that I've realized, one of the biggest rough edges that I've had to stop trying to smooth down is um, my own programming process. So, you know, uh, you're a remote coach, you know the deal, you have a lot of programs to write. And our natural tendency is to try to come up with a process. You know, the, the process might be like, let's say, okay, step one, we run an assessment. Doesn't matter what the assessment is. You have, you have an assessment you run. Step two, you uh, analyze the assessment. You make some decisions based off it. Step three, maybe, maybe you add a step where you interact with the athlete a little bit. You say, hey, this is what, you know, some coaches don't do this at all. I'm not saying that's good or bad. People do things different ways. But, you know, you might say, this is what I've derived from running the assessment and running the analysis. Here's what I think the situation is. Tell me what you think. Maybe you do that, maybe you don't. But all the same, there's this process. You have the athlete come in and you uh, run them through your process and then you you go from there. What I've found is that I have much better success and it's more work. It's something I've like, I hate working. I've been trying to avoid working my whole damn life, Kevin. I just can't get away from it. Uh, what I've been, had a lot more success with is this. When I have a new client, we hop on a call, talk to talk at them for a half an hour to an hour. I ask a lot of questions. I try to get a sense for what they're like. Then I send them a list of metrics 
I, it's a huge list, like 40 different metrics they could send me. It's only that long so that like, because with CrossFitters in particular, there's so many different things that test. It's just totally viable that like this person hasn't rode a 5k in two years. They don't know what their 5k time is. So I give them enough tests that like, I'm going to draw a picture by them filling in as many of those metrics as possible. I'm going to have an idea of where the athlete stands from a performance perspective. Now I'm going to write an assessment. We're not going to use the same assessment every time. My assessments, my performance assessments look different for every single athlete every time we do it with the exception of retesting certain assessments. So, and then my process for actually writing the program is different for every athlete. I have, you know, I use the same software, but so for example, some athletes, I write a full macro cycle at a time. Uh, some athletes, I determine, okay, this macro cycle is 20 weeks long. We're going to break it into five, four-week mesocycles. I'm going to write one mesocycle at a time. I have some athletes who I write their program day-to-day. My, my, my most successful athlete, a guy named Sean Sweeney, uh, we FaceTime every day at least once, usually twice. I call him in the morning. I have a very general structure. You know, I know that on Monday he's doing a snatch exercise, a muscle-up exercise, um, anaerobic power intervals, and a Metcon. I call him Monday morning, ask him how you're feeling, how's your shoulder, how'd you sleep, how much time do you have to train today? He owns two gyms, so he's not, you know, he's, he's sometimes we can't get three hours of training in. Um, and then right there on the phone with him, I write the program. Now, I don't do that with most of my athletes. Why do I do it with him and not with others? Because general principles are strictly false at an individual level. And overworking with this particular athlete for a half a decade, the conclusion I've come to is that we have the most success uh, when we have a loose structure, which we into which we put in training pieces day by day. There's a whole long like background to how I came to that conclusion. It is a that's a relatively unique case, right? That's an extreme case. It's it's not frequent. He's the only athlete I've ever done that with, but but it works. It works really well. And uh, the point I want to make here is that like coming back to this process of intuitive coaching, it has to be informed and it has to be intentional, but uh, absolutely like the, you, you should trust your judgments and you should, you should be working to hone your ability to make those judgments. The more you do that, the more you'll be able to lean into your intuition and find success. Now, there are barriers to entry. I don't think any coach can do this from day one. There's no way to teach this to somebody like in, in school uh, or, or whatever. Like you have to s- develop this skill. So you're gonna, I think any aspiring coach, you're going to go through a period where the way that you write your program is, oh, here's these general principles. Let me codify them in the form of a program and apply it to the athlete. It's fine. That's completely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And you probably have to go through that process. The thing you want to avoid is treating that process as the quote unquote correct way to go about it. View that as your, your barrier to entry. This is the first stage of being an effective coach is understanding general principles, applying them to athletes and observing the results. That's step one. But it's, it's, not, it's not the last step. It's not just about getting better at doing that thing. It's about understanding what you're doing as you do that thing and honing that process. So it's taking coaching from a science to an art, I guess. Yeah, yeah I, I, would, I, would take it, I, would, I would say it, that it is 
it is treating coaching as a skill and developing that skill. And, uh, and part of the skill is understanding the scientific background. Part of that skill is applying programs to the athlete. And yeah, if we want to call that art, sure. Like I'm, I'm, I don't know what art is, man. It's a, that's a, that's a whole big question (laughs) unto itself. I don't think either of us are equipped to answer it. I'm certainly not, but yeah, I think it's coaching is a skill and you should be developing that skill in a deliberate fashion. Not just, I think, I think oftentimes we substitute the accumulation of information as we, we substitute that for the development of coaching skill. Um, accumulating information is great, but you have to develop skill alongside it. I think you basically explained like where I came from and where I'm at now, right? Like in the beginning, I was fortunate enough to have a high level coach like that. So I just kind of mimicked what he did and like asked him a ton of questions. Yeah. And like, so, you know, plus, you know, I have formal education in in the field and stuff. So I had an idea of the general principles and I started to apply them. And at the time, you know, I had one person and then a second person like, um, strolled in and, you know, it worked most of the time, but then all of a sudden I started getting questions, right. Where it's like, okay, well that didn't work that time why? And then, you know, you, you try to figure it out and you, you ask questions and it leads you one place. And, and the same thing, you, you hear something else and you apply it and you kind of, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of time to, I think, get to that point. I think for me at the time, what I was doing was appropriate for the skill level of coach that I was. Exactly. And that's, and that's totally fine. Like I said, I think every, I went through that process too, a hundred percent. I think it's unavoidable. The danger is not going through that stage. If, if we agree that coaching is a skill, then it's going to take time to develop. And the only way you're going to develop is by doing it. So it's okay to spend a year or two years or however long it it takes you to kind of segue into that next step. Coaching athletes in that fashion, it's worked for a lot of people, continues to work for a lot of people. The key is just to understand that what you're, that you as a coach are, you're exercising a skill and your focus should be not just on accumulating further information, with which you will sort of supplement the current way in which you apply that skill, but you actually improve the skill itself. Easier said than done. It takes a lot of time. I don't think there's a shortcut, but we can be more explicit about it. You know, if, if, if I were, if my job instead of coaching athletes or alongside coaching athletes was, was developing coaches, I would say, look, you have to understand these general principles. Now, now that you understand them, let's talk about how we're applying them. Let's talk about, your protocols for maybe deviating from them. When you make a change, why do you make that change? What are you doing to determine if the change, uh, if the change was, was positive? Uh, what are you going to do with the results of that? Let's call it a test or an experiment. Uh, it's, it's not about always getting the right answer. It's not about finding like, it's, it's not, it's simply not the case that if you just accumulate enough information and understand it well enough, you'll always have the answer. It doesn't work like that because the information is always useful or not useful relative to the athlete. Your job is to determine how to apply whatever information you have in the most effective way for a particular athlete. And unfortunately, there's just no shortcut here. This is a, it's a, it's a challenging skill. It takes a lot of time to develop and you're going to have to put in the work. You're going to have to put in a lot and over years. This is not like, I don't think there's any amount of like, 
you could take on a hundred athletes and coach them all and actively think about all this stuff. And, and like after a year, you're still not going to have made that much progress. This takes a lot of time and a lot of experience. But if you're, you know, the phrase I like to use moving imperfectly forward, if you're constantly trying to get a little bit better, trying to question the things you think are useful or correct or true. And if you are, and this is key, listening carefully to what your athletes are telling you, then you'll get there eventually might take half a decade, but you'll get there. I think like for me, it was a a big transition from a way I was thinking. So instead of searching for the answers, basically I decided that the question actually is the answer. So I want to know where their performance is at. So there, we have a number of options here. Usually I suggest a, a top set based off of like previous weeks. Sure. Um, numbers or something. You could do AMRAPs. You could do a one rep max test. Like, you know, just kind of, I guess I stopped seeking for answers so much and just started observing. Right. Mm -hmm. And and like asking more questions and just paying attention to what I saw and it made, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to, I I have a, I have a big team and this is all I do. I only coach competitive power lifters and most of them are in person. Um, so I can dedicate a lot of time, um, to doing that. But like, I think just having enough people along the way too to be like, not give me the answers, but just guide me. You know, when I started getting a little bit off the path, they kind of pushed me back on it to find my way. And I think all of us have had like those important like networks, um, you know, like you were saying, you, you ask somebody, you know, where, where do I go from here? Like, like there's always people that, um, and that's like kind of the reason why I want to put out like content like this and stuff. For sure. I'm in a similar boat. You know, I, in, in, uh, mid 2011, late 2011, something like that, I started driving up to San Ramon, California every week. This is when I still lived in a, in my hometown of Monterey. I'm in Seattle now, but, uh, I would drive up to San Ramon, which is where California strength is located. At the time, Glenn Pendley was there. I'd never worked with a high level coach. I met Glenn at the meet and, uh, I asked if I could come train mostly not because I wanted to be a, like a, you know, I was never going to be a good weightlifter, but cause I wanted to see how he coached. And I learned a ton from Glenn in particular. I learned a ton about being open-minded. Glenn is Glenn's answer to so many questions is it depends, or I'm not sure, or that could work. Give it a try to, to so many questions, to questions that you would generally think of a high level weightlifting coach. He would have a hard answer. I remember asking, Hey, my knees have been really aching when I high bar squat. Do you think doing low bar squats for a while would be like a big deal? And he was just kind of like, you know, the, the, the go-to answer among weightlifting coaches is you must high bar squat. You must high bar squat. You must high bar squat. And for the record, I think that's mostly true. I think given the, you know, given that there is no like reason to not high bar squat, it is probably better to high bar squat, but I had a reason. So Glenn was like, give it a try. I don't, I don't think it'll be that bad. We'll see if it works. And it worked fine. It worked fine. Um, did it work as well as high bar squats would have? Maybe not. In fact, I'll go so far as to say probably not, but that's irrelevant because I couldn't high bar squat at the time without my knees feeling like they were going to explode. I think so, too, with that same situation though, if you, you know, felt like the high bar squats weren't going to work for you, they were causing you pain. It probably sure. wouldn't have worked as well. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, sure. The high bar squats would have worked better in a theoretical world where all the circumstances led to high, like the high bar squats would have worked better if they had worked better, but they weren't working. End of discussion. And, you know, similar to you, I was like, you said you worked with Shaco. I was very fortunate to start to start to this process, this change in process started to coalesce uh, in my, in my time with Glenn. And uh, yeah, I think the content's a good point because like, unfortunately, this sort of approach, as far as I know, at least, isn't really being taught in, in uh, academia. Uh, you know, my understanding, again, junior college dropout, I have no idea what really happens. For all I know, all universities are secret sex cults. I have no idea. <laughs> but um, which, would, which would be a lot, actually a lot better than, than what I thought it was. But uh, like, my understanding is that the, the environment is heavily, heavily, heavily driven by understanding first general uh, general principles and then research. That stuff's all important, but it's not equal to coaching skill. How many times have you, I mean, if you, you did this stuff in school, how many of your colleagues do you think graduated their four-year degree competent coaches? Zero. Zero. Because, and it's not any fault of their own, because here's the, here's the follow-up question. How many classes in your program were dedicated to here is how to be a skillful coach. Absolutely zero. If Absolutely you're zero. It's fortunate enough, you got an internship somewhere. Exactly. So, uh, and even those internships are not really designed to make you a good coach. They're, I mean, did you did you do one of those internships? I did at uh, Harvard. Um, was it was it productive for you? It wasn't bad. So it wasn't as like um, much of a nightmare as I've heard um, other ones be. Yeah. Um, so they're so short staffed there that you just kind of get thrown into the fire. Yeah. That's the um, impression that I've, that I've got from most folks. So I think there's a lot that can be taken from those types of situations. Um, and there's obviously ways in which it could, it could have, um, sure. Definitely could have been better. Yeah. I, I'm not saying those internships are bad by any means. They're certainly useful in a lot of ways, if nothing else, because like networking matters. If you want to work in the field, it's good to meet people. And, and I'm sure, you know, it's totally viable to learn things, but like, it wasn't, I'm, I'm imagining it wasn't a process that was like, look, you are here to learn how to coach. It, I think it's, the process is more like, my impression of it is more like, you're here to help us in any way we need, and you're probably going to pick up some of coaching along the way, assuming that this program is well run, assuming there are already good coaches here and all that. And like, if all those variables fall into place, but you know, I, I would, I would have to assume it's just a numbers game that there are other internships where like you show up and you're basically a gopher and the coaches themselves are pretty bad. So you don't really learn much of anything. So I, I do think that like, the academic approach to exercise science is about the science and that's not a bad thing, but it's not the same thing as coaching. So I'm, I'm certainly uh, grateful for like content, like the stuff you're doing, like Mike does and, and all that, that is specifically aimed at helping people through this process. Cause you know, you and me, we had to do it for lack of a better term, the hard way. And we kind of lucked out because you know, you had a mentor who was, who helped you through this process. If unconsciously I had, I had one as well. Uh, a lot of people who are every bit as, as smart and capable and driven as us might simply never luck into those opportunities. So, uh, so it's, I think it is important to, to be talking about this stuff and putting it out there and encouraging it because 
you know, it, it took me the better part of a decade. Uh, I mean, I, like I said, I've been coaching professionally over a decade now, but to get to like the general sphere where I've been, uh, you know, let's say it's been 10, it's a decade. Let's say it's, it's, I've been in two for two years. I've been in this like current spot. Um, I think that could be cut down. It could be cut down to half a decade. That's a big deal. And, uh, I think that, that that's, you know, unfortunately, I don't see a, a path forward right now through academia for that. So, um, so you know, thankfully, there's there's people out like you out there doing the good work and, and, uh, and telling people about it. Yeah, um, I have one more question on here because I have this like it's, it's going to be about fatigue. So since you're a CrossFit guy, I was like, I got to ask because I, you know, I think our understanding of fatigue might not necessarily be like might we're be a little lacking. Might yeah. Be a little lacking. All right. Um, <laughs> so I actually like, there's obviously fatigue that builds up in a, in an acute manner, right? You do a ton of sets, you're building up fatigue. There's stuff happening there. Sure. But my whole like theory is, is after that stuff, like, replenishing glycogen, uh, your CNS recovering, like that stuff doesn't take very long. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking like maybe a day if you have a really hard training session, but we get these like lingering, maybe my elbows hurt, my knees hurt, my, this dip in performance. Right. And if I think of it from like an actual, like in context, if I do a hard triple on a squat, that's like nine seconds. If maybe a little bit more, it's like two plays in the NFL. And like those guys are putting forth full effort. There's collisions involved and nobody would be like, yo, you played two plays. You got to check your workload. Right. Um, So I think there's like this, that fatigue might just have higher psychological factors. Like if my elbow hurts, like same way, if I cut you open, I can't see performance. In those cases, typically, if I cut you open, I'm not going to see any damage to your elbow that might necessarily be leading to pain. So in, in, my thinking it's we could probably train a lot harder than we think. And I actually structure the programs in a way where um, they'll self-organize into their lighter days and deloads and, and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. So I'm not saying that you can just train hard all the time. Sure. Like, like those psychological factors are real and it's not like, Oh, just train through your elbow pain. We'll high bar for a few days or something and then go back to it. But sure. Like there are adjustments that are made both CrossFit. You guys do so many things and you probably train more days per week than us. Um, and probably like activity wise, like I'm thinking in a training session, I probably literally do activity for like three minutes. Like it's a very short amount of like total time. It's mostly just me fucking around eating gummy bears and having fun with the team members and stuff. I mean, frankly, it sounds to me like you've got this figured out better than any of my, like my athletes, all the stuff they do hurts really bad. You're just eating gummy bears. Oh yeah. We're just geniuses. It's a, it's a social thing first, and we kind of just lift weights to take a break from, from talking. Um, I'm into it. <laughs> but I, I kind of want to hear your take on, like, managing fatigue with CrossFit athletes uh, oh. for, that, for that reason. Man, uh, this is a really, really huge question. So I would say that sort of the place that I started uh, really wondering about this and investigating this question is actually with the question of volume. The question being how on earth am I supposed to measure volume for a CrossFit athlete? Um, CrossFit athletes do a lot of different things. Let's, let's take two of them, lifting and running. Uh, I can easily calculate uh, volume for lifting by using tonnage. That, that's one way to do it. I can easily calculate the running volume through mileage. 
What's the equation for adding those two factors together? How am I supposed to reconcile those things? When I'm trying to measure the total training volume my athletes are doing, how am I supposed to say, okay, well, today this athlete did um, eight sets of two on the snatch, uh, ranging between, you know, X and X plus 10 kilos. They did three uh, sets of reps at eight on muscle up. So reps at eight, meaning leaving two to three in the tank. Uh, so, you know, they did, let's, let's say they ended up doing a total of 20 muscle ups. They, uh, did a Metcon that had 30 barbell thrusters, uh, 45 chest to bar pull-ups and 60 burpees. And they, uh, did running intervals, including their warm up to a total of, let's say two miles of running. How much volume did the athlete do? <laughs> The question doesn't even make sense. The question doesn't make sense. So what I started doing not too long ago, and uh, I actually got the idea from Jordan Feigenbaum, who's at Barbell Medicine, him and Austin Baraki, uh, and he was recently on Mike's podcast as well. In talking with Jordan about this very question, uh, I mentioned that what I'd been doing to track volume is – I track what I call discrete exposures. So, so for example, I'm going to pull up a, a program right now. I'm, I'm in front of my computer. I'm going to, I'm going to pull up an athlete's program. So yesterday, uh, this athlete had the following. They had uh, running and true form run and echo bike intervals, a minute run at a nine minute rest, a minute bike at a nine minute rest for five rounds. So there's 10 total minutes of work. Then they had front squats to a box, uh, building up to a heavyish set of five. They had a complex of kettlebell lunges and front squats, and they had a, uh, a low intensity, uh, like relatively high strength Metcon of strict deficit and handstand pushups and strict pull-ups. Each of those things that I just listed is what I call a discrete exposure. So this athlete had four discrete exposures, the true form run and echo bike, the front squats, the kettlebell complex, and the, uh, the Metcon. Those are four discrete exposures. So what I'm looking at here is observing the way the athlete responds to the training session. They leave notes for me. And if this athlete in particular, I know really well, I can kind of interpret, you know, this is, this is Sean, actually the athlete I mentioned earlier. I can just look at what he says and I know I'm going to talk to him. So he doesn't need to leave like in-depth notes, but he might have left notes that are in-depth and said something like, uh, intervals felt great. Uh, front box squats. I was a little tired, but, uh, you know, I was, I'm still feeling pretty good here. Kettlebell lunge and front squat. Oh my God, I barely made these. This hurts so bad. I, I barely had the motivation to get through. And the Metcon, oh man, I just kind of phoned this in, right? What I'm observing. So, this, so the question now is, okay, well, we seem to be observing fatigue. The, the question is, what is the fundamental nature of that fatigue? Is the athlete tiring physically in a way that can be directly correlated to the relative decline in performance or is there a psychological component that's overpowering how physically tired the athlete may or may not be? This is further complicated by things like what if the athlete left me all those notes, but also like about how they felt, but also crushed everything in front of them, right? They set a PR on every single thing. What am I supposed to make of that? So 
I started using this discrete exposure method and what I started playing with instead of like, oh, how many reps of squatting are we doing every week or how many rep miles of running is just how many discrete exposures. This athlete seems to do well with, let's say, three discrete exposures a day, four discrete exposures a day, or maybe we stretch it out over a week, right? Maybe one athlete does well with 20 discrete exposures. Another one does well with 15 discrete exposures. But of course, like this is entirely arbitrary. So I started using this and I started seeing results. It was working. I was doing a much better job of organizing my athlete's training. And the main thing I was looking at was like across workouts and across the week, how's the athlete feeling by the end of the workout by the end of the week? And it was working, but it's totally arbitrary, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not doing a volume calculation. What would the volume calculation even look like for that? It's impossible. It's like trying to, it's like trying to multiply X by banana. What? It doesn't make sense. It's a, it's a useless question. So the, my position on fatigue has essentially moved towards, of course, physical fatigue exists. Let's not be ridiculous. But what we're trying to do as coaches is not measure and manage physical fatigue. We're trying to observe how the athlete interacts psychologically with their physical fatigue and modify the program to accommodate that. So an athlete might do well with 15, 20, or 25 discrete exposures. And that's not necessarily like maybe at base, that's telling us something about the physiological level of fatigue, but the actual like how question of how physically tired, how fatigues this athlete, the answer to that question is totally inaccessible to us. So instead, what we, what we actually want to do is determine well, how much fatigue can this athlete handle, quote unquote? And what that means is when this athlete uh, seems to break down, at what level of volume is it? Where volume is like whatever, man, you can use. If you're just, if you have people just lifting, I don't want to say tonnage is a bad metric. Tonnage is a perfectly fine metric. It's just an arbitrary one. Arbitrary metrics are fine. That's not, there's nothing wrong with them. But the arbitrary metric I chose was discrete exposures. And that seems to work pretty well. But ultimately what I'm doing has nothing to do with like measuring their physical fatigue. I don't have access to that information. What I'm doing is paying attention to how the athlete responds to a number of discrete exposures and modifying that number and trying to find that sweet spot. One more, one more question. Yeah, um, absolutely. So if you have that athlete that has, um, let's say, you know, they, they feel like shit, but they're crushing those PRs um, yeah. or, or, you know, and you have another athlete that feels like shit and they're not crushing the, crushing the PRs and it just like, they just get bummed out and it negatively affects performance. Um, do you feel that can be trained? Hmm. Do, you, do you mean like, can an athlete who is the question you're asking, can let's say an athlete handles 15 discrete exposures, but not 20. Are you asking, can an athlete get to the point where they handle 20 discrete exposures? Or are you asking, can the athlete train the way they interact with their feeling of physical fatigue? Train with the way that they interact with their feeling of physical fatigue. I suspect the answer is yes, but I'm not sure what the best way to go about it would be. Um, it's got to be, I'm sure it's at least related to their physiological level of fitness, right? It's at, but, but maybe it's not though, because like they're going to experience fatigue in the same way psychologically, whether they experience it from 15 or 20 or 25 exposures or whatever units of volume. So uh, the, the very unsatisfying answer to your question is I suspect, yes, it can be trained. I'm not sure how best to go about it at this time. Uh, so like for, for me to train that, it's easy because I can just put 
weight on the bar, right? Mm-hmm. But or like, you know, I can I can do things that can help build their confidence um, sure. when when I see them being there. But if somebody's like, you know, mentally mentally weak is a bad word, but like if they're mentally weak and they're just kind of bummed out, like, you if know, they, that if they, they do. don't have this skill, maybe. Yeah. 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 That's a good way of putting it. And they're hitting that box jump workout that you were talking about. Like for me, when I hear that, the, my main concern is psychological there. Like I, I want to improve that athlete's mental skill. Um, but I think powerlifting is very different uh, from that aspect. Like I know how I would do it from there. I just, I just wasn't sure if there was like a, a way, you know, I, I wrestled into the MMA thing too. Somebody's punching me in the face. I am more than motivated to keep going if I'm tired, sure. but in a sport where you're by yourself like that and you're forced to have that like intrinsic motivation. Um, I was just wondering if you had any ways that you went about like trying to train that. Cause uh, I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, not not explicitly at this time, but that might just be because I'm not I'm not like I don't have that skill yet. Uh, my my guess my guess is that it's still going to be contingent on coach athlete interaction. It's still going to be contingent on like when this athlete says this to you, what do you say to them? What do you ask them to do? How do you ask them to handle it? And, and like everything we've been talking about, it's probably individual to some degree. Um, you know, athletes. Uh, so an example is like, I'm, I'm personally not a religious person. I'm, I'm an atheist, but I've, I've quite a few athletes who are religious people and, uh, I have no problem with religion. Like I don't, I'm, I don't care what people do with their, with their personal beliefs. So if I have an athlete who is struggling with this kind of stuff and it's usually like, it's, it's usually has less to do with the day to day sessions, but more like the, the riskier thing is when you have this overall sort of downward gradient of the, of the athlete's mental state where they're becoming less and less motivated, less and less encouraged, maybe doubting themselves more and more. So if I have an athlete who I know is particularly religious, I'll encourage them like, Hey, you should lean into that. You should, you should, uh, you know, if, if that's where you, how you kind of derive meaning and how you sort of perceive answers to certain important questions, maybe you need to think about that in the context of training. I'm not a religious person. I'm, I'm a, a flat out atheist and have been since as long as I was able to conceptualize, you know, questions of that nature. But like, I'm totally willing to make that suggestion and not, it's not like a manipulative, like, Oh, I'm going to use this person's religion to, to get them to do what I want. No, it's, it's like, this is how this person's cognition works. So I'm going to ask them to lean into their cognition, to lean into their belief system and, and see if they can find an answer that helps them for an athlete. Who's not religious. I'm going to have a totally different approach, but I suspect that what it comes down to is sort of like the, collaborative investigation of the athlete's cognition and trying to figure out, well, how does this athlete think and feel about the training process? How do they conceptualize training in their head? What does training mean to them? And how can we get them to reframe their sense of fatigue in a way that they're able to better interact with? I wish I had a less messy answer, but I think that's the best I can do. So it comes back to teaching them training as a skill. Yeah, I, I think so. I think in some sense that's that's kind of what this all orbits around. Uh, I, um, it's a really good idea with the religion thing. Um, I never I never thought of it from that that type of context before. Um, we're getting into about an hour and a half here. Uh, Alyssa, who does all the editing of this, is gonna fucking kill me. <laughs> um, 
Sorry, Alyssa. But if uh, you just want to tell people where they can find your stuff on the internet, um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I love the way you think and I love the, um, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff um, in this 90 minutes. I know, I know I enjoyed it. Yeah, this was a blast, man. I, I had a really good time. Um, if people are interested in my stuff, my website is anarchostrainingmethods.com. That's anarchos, like anarchy, but A-N-A-R-C-H-O-S. Uh, Instagram is the same. I have a Twitter. I don't, I don't use, I'm so like, I can't say anything in 280 characters. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but anarchostrainingmethods.com, uh, anarchostrainingmethods on Instagram. You can read my book called Fitness as Sport Theory and Practice. You can get that either from uh, Juggernaut Training Systems or Renaissance Periodization. They both sell it. I have a bunch of articles up on Juggernaut. And I'm easy to reach, and I love talking about this stuff. So if, if anybody has questions, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm usually, usually around uh, to give you a couple words if there's something that you're, that you're wondering about. So feel free to reach out. Awesome. Um, I also don't have Twitter, hence probably why we ended up talking for an hour and a half. It's just, it's not enough. Yeah, um, I agree. Guys, you can follow me on Instagram. It's KWK and our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston.